This week on Merchants of Change, we've got Stanford University basketball alum Chris Bobel. Before he became an elite seller, Chris spent four years coaching college basketball at Stanford and LSU. Chris started his selling career with a five-year stint at Box. He's currently leading a team of enterprise sellers at Slack. Here he is, Chris Bobel. I'm J.R. Butler, co-founder of The Shift Group, and you're listening to Merchants of Change. This is a podcast about transferring the skills and behaviors we acquire as athletes into being a professional technology salesperson. Each week, we'll introduce you to a top performer who will help us understand how they became professional merchants of change. What's up, kid? How we doing? That's happening, JR. Ready to rock? Be ready to rock. Good to see you again, Chris. Thank you so much for being on the show, my man. Oh, absolutely. Honored to be here. We're, we're pumped to have you, man. I, so I don't know if you've, if you've listened to any episodes, um, but our audience is really like new sellers um, and, and athletes that might be considering a career into shift into sales, obviously, right? So our mission is pretty simple. We help elite athletes become elite sellers. Um, and all of our guests are, are, are almost always former athletes who found success in sales. So we kind of start with the, the sports career. Um, and, and I'm super pumped to hear about your, your journey. Um, and we start with a really broad question. Um, we love to ask people, when you think of your favorite memories from sports, what, what, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? When I asked that. Oh, practice. Absolutely practice. The ritual of going every day or six days a week or 12 days a week, however many times you practice, and getting together with a group of people that have a common goal to win. And for me, I would always, everything geared around what time of day practice was. I was going to eat a certain way. I was going to do whatever I had to do to get my mind ready because when practice went, it was game time. And for me, each team and each year was also a little different. So that set of practices you had for a year, that was unique to that group that will never be replicated again. And so for me, just the idea of having practice every day is, is what I miss the most about not being in it day to day anymore. And the camaraderie after practice, right? Absolutely. You know, for us in basketball, you know, you play shooting games after practice. I'm sure in other sports, you know, you go to the ice bath as a group and you have those other little special relationships that you might always get extra shots up with Anthony. That was my guy. That's who I shared a locker with. And like every day after practice, I'm like, Anthony, let's do 10 more. And you'd have that one guy or person. And you might have that person beforehand too, you know, in the, in the locker room, you're getting taped. You're getting loose, you're joking, but as, as practice gets a little closer, things are getting a little more tense. The chitter-chatter <laughs> goes down a little bit until it's, uh, until it's that time, and it really, it's go time. I love it. Everybody has their, like, locker room buddy, like, you know, it's like they have their ritual, like, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, absolutely. So I lived close to the university growing up. I knew the coach when I was in high school, and he told me, you know, Chris, you're a neat kid, but come to Stanford to go to Stanford, not to play basketball. So 
the first couple of years in college, I was actually coaching in the community. I had a fifth grade AAU team. I coached at my old middle school. I actually was an assistant coach on the Palo Alto varsity team when Jeremy Lin was playing. And then I started working in the Stanford office as a student manager. And I was doing a lot of the recruiting work. And this will kind of tie back later because I was also running our recruiting database. And so then I really started playing more and more with the guys. And I'd be up in the office and, you know, I'd get a call, Bobo, they got nine, they need a tenth. Go run down to the gym and be a body. You know, run around, set screens, go offensive rebound and play defense and play, be tough. And so that started happening a little more. And what I never wanted to do was manipulate my position as a student manager, someone that had the trust of the coaching staff already, and then kind of put my hand up and be like, I want to play. And so what I was really doing was being there and to the point where I was showing my value in those practices, in those shoot-arounds, whatever it was, individual workouts, to the point when Coach Johnson asked me, hey, I, I have 14 guys. I want to have 15 next year. Do you want to play? I was like, oh, yeah. And so for me, I really wanted to like earn that but not force my way in. And so when Coach asked me, I was actually a senior in college. And Coach didn't know that. He just knew I was a dependable guy in the office. So I had to literally drop out of school find those classes for next year so I wouldn't graduate so I could be eligible because the year I walked on was actually my fifth year of college. And it was funny because my mom didn't know until she didn't get a bill for classes. And she's like, what's going on here? I was like, oh, uh, yeah, I dropped, I dropped out of school. I'm going to I'm going to start up again next year, but I don't want to graduate yet so I can maintain my eligibility to play basketball. <laughs> I was like, I'll do anything. And then when they said that and they said, well, okay, you're going to get a jersey next year. I was like, I'll do anything. Tell me what I need to do. And they're like, win the mile run. Out bench press everyone. Just show that work mentality and that work ethic. And you're going to be there all summer. And in basketball, we had rules about how much you could be there. So coach was like, look, I got five freshmen and a transfer coming in. I need you there every day of that summer. Show them how to work. Show them what it means to show up every day. Because we got Brooke and Robin Lopez coming in. They need to see someone work. And so I was there all summer with those guys, almost like I was a freshman, except I was 22 and bald. And, uh, you know, just to set the tone of what Stanford basketball was and what Stanford University was of how to show up in the classroom, too. So that's how it happened. It was the summer of 2006. And then it just, yeah, it was awesome. I I could talk about it all day, but I'll, I'll let you get to other questions. That, that is awesome. I love, by the way, like if, if when I was a VP of sales or a CRO, if somebody told me they were a walk-on, like, like you're hired, right? Like I know, I know the work ethic. I played with guys that walked on our, our, our college hockey team. Um, and those guys, are, it's, a, it's a different mentality, man. You earn it. Like you said, you earn it every single day that you're there. Um, Tom, Tom gave me a note that I have to ask about because I feel like I'm going to love whatever this is about. DTR, dress taped ready. What is that all about? I need to know this. Uh, DTR. Uh, coach Jay, my college coach, Trent Johnson, who I actually followed to Louisiana State after Stanford, he wouldn't talk about like, oh, practices at this time. It was DTR. DTR 3 o'clock. DTR 6 o'clock. And it didn't even make sense when it was like team dinners, DTR for team dinner, but dress taped ready. And that didn't mean like, oh, I'll see you at the gym at that time. 
we could start a four-on-four shell drill at three o'clock if DTR was three. So that means if you're a student manager, you're probably at the gym 90 minutes early. If you're me, you're probably there 60 minutes early. And if you were even the best player on the team, you were probably there 20 minutes early. Get your treatment, go to the training room, get your ankles taped, put on your braces, because when that ball goes up at 3 p.m., it's go time. And what's funny is like we still talk about it. I'm on a text thread with uh, former student managers at LSU, and I'll get back together with them. And they're like, yo, what time is DTR? I'm like, we're going to dinner. Um, but yeah, at 7 o'clock, 7 o'clock, be ready to eat at 7. And so DTR, dress safe and ready. Oh, I am stealing that 100%. Um, one of my friends once described me as like the guy that had nine cups of coffee before every practice and just raring to go like the bull before the rodeo. And they open the gate and it's going. And I think uh, that's how I treated every layup line, every drill. And so people would like, you know, I think they would maybe roll their eyes at first, like thinking it was a show. And then 288 practices in, they're like, oh, no, that's him. And, you know, for me and one of the other walk-ons, we had a funny name for ourselves. We called ourselves the 30-30-30 guys. And so if we were up by 30 or down by 30, we got to play for 30 seconds. And so for us, like practice was the thing. Like I would be on cloud. If I made a move in practice, hit a layup on a guy or dunked it, whatever, I would think about that all week. So for me, I there wasn't a drill, a weight exercise. Even if we're sprinting the 400, I'm going to do it under 60 seconds, and I'm going to win. And it was funny because right when Coach Johnson asked me to walk on, there was another kid in the community that was a senior in high school that wanted to walk on. And I remember he asked me, well, what do you think, Bobes? And I was like, I don't know, man. That guy's good. He's good at basketball. Like, he should go play D3 or, you know, he needs the ball in his hand. Like, he's a shooter. That's not what you want to walk on. You want a bulldog. You want someone that's going to play hard <laughs> at practice and be physical. Because my whole job, I'm not trying to score. I'm trying to make Lawrence Hill first team all pack 10 2007. I'm trying to make him just 10% better at his job. That's literally my job is to be the scout team so he can play against UCLA. And, you know, cool. I get to be OJ Mayo in practice from USC. So he knows how to guard that person when we get to game time. So uh, the 30-30-30 thing is awesome. We, we had a crew when I played college hockey, Chris, we called ourselves the popcorn crew um, because, you know, in hockey, there's a term called a grocery stick. It's the, kid, it's the kids that don't play. You sit between the forwards and the defensemen. So you're like a grocery stick that, separate, that separates them. And we, we, we would literally turn our hockey gloves around during the game and we would pretend to eat popcorn out of it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Do you have any, any favorite teammates, Chris, from back then? Oh, you know what? I had – I loved everyone on the team, and each guy was better than the next a little bit. But there's one guy, Peter Prowett, who's in sales now in technology. And what reminds me so fondly of my time with him is – when I was coming up to be a walk-on, I was so afraid of, like, the guys on the current team be like, oh, another manager that wants to walk on, you know? And I would think they would, like, resent me for it. And he was so supportive. And I actually told this speech at his 30th birthday. He was the guy who was like, no, no, no. Come on, man. Everyone's going to be happy for you. When you get your nameplate on that locker and you pick your number, we're all going to be happy for you. So he was kind of in the background, you know, telling me, dude, don't worry about that. We got you. We want you to be on this team. 
And so I was so fortunate when he wanted to make the transition from consulting and when his professional career is over, I was like, come be an SDR at Box. Let me repay this for you and let's turn this shit or stuff full circle. And so like, I think a lot about him, but I think about Anthony Goods, who is my locker teammate and who I would always get extra shots up. And when I say extra shots, he was shooting and I was rebounding, right? Because that were our roles. And he loved it. And I would push him like, do 25 more. And so that was my locker buddy. And then Mitch Johnson, who's now an assistant coach with the Spurs, he was our captain. He was the voice. And he would tell me too, Bopes, get the energy up for us a little bit today. We're sluggish. Show in the layups. Go dunk the first one. Go dunk the first layup. Coach is going to yell at you, but we need you to do it. All right? I'm like, cool. I'll do whatever liners. And even like Landry Fields was a great guy who's now the GM of the Hawks. Like we had a star-studded team, if you think about it. Yeah. And like Landry was like growing into his own. He was a young freshman, but like him, like getting to see that evolution, rooming with him on the road was great too. And we talk all the time. And I guess I got to give one last shout out to Kenny Brown. Uh, that was one of my best buds, another super supportive guy, and actually lived with my parents his fifth year in college. So again, these relationships in sports, it's not like anything else. And it's just so nice that like, I can call Kenny tomorrow and jump on the phone with him for 30 minutes and we don't need to plan anything. It's the family you choose. In college, you know, when McKinsey and Goldman Sachs would come to recruit at Stanford, I'd just go to the gym and go lift. You know, I, I knew I was doing something in basketball. When I was coaching a fifth grade AAU team, it was funny because I'm coaching all these venture capitalist kids, right? Because it's Silicon Valley. And I'm giving this speech at the end of the season of like, I got a C in my computer science class. Because I was watching game tape of some 10-year-olds rather than compiling my programs. And so then I was like, dude, I, I'm going to do this for my life. And so when I did make the decision to change, it was a lot of those same donors and people in the community that came like, we got you. Again, a sports thing. They saw how hard I worked to practice. They knew my story. And so many of them were willing to say, I'll get you an informational interview here or there. And some of them kind of knew what I did as a job in basketball too. And they helped me and say like, look, this is no different than what you did. It's just framed a little differently. And so that actually came to fruition with my very first job interview. I got on the phone and someone's like, are you are you scared to cold call a CIO? I was like, I have no idea what cold call means or what a CIO is. But if you give me the telephone number, I'll dial it right now. What, what are they going to happen? Hang up on me? Do you think that's <laughs> scary? That's not scary. I've been recruiting high school basketball players for three years. You know how scary it is to call someone at home? You're interrupting their day? And then I get on the phone with some kid I've never met in rural Mississippi trying to recruit him to LSU. Pretending like I know anything about Gucci Mane's newest album? That, <laughs> that is scary. And so I told the guy, yeah, cold call CIO with a value prop, something you already wrote out? Easy. I'll do it a hundred times. hundred times. <laughs> yeah. So it was funny because the more I learned about sales too, I look back and I think like this was basketball recruiting. It was just different. The... The goal was different, but it was the same process. Like when you're recruiting a high school athlete, you're multi-threading, right? You got to know who the auntie is. You got to know who the AAU coach is. And you got to know which one of those people actually has influence on the kid. 
And you'll hear these stories too, like, ah, that, that school messed up. You know, they, they were talking to the high school coach too much, but they didn't know the inside track was Uncle Don or someone in the community that really had his ear or had his pocket. And so like, that's the thing too. Like I was multi-threading in high school basketball recruiting before I even knew what that word meant. And so cold calling, yeah, that's just calling someone at home at night recruiting. And so I think that's something I talked about in my first interview when I learned what a cold call was. And I was like, oh yeah, I do that 20 times a night. Yeah, give me, give me the phone, <laughs> give me the phone. I've never, I've never, we placed former college coaches, Chris. I've never thought about what you just said, that idea of like, it is, you're, you do have to multi-thread. You do have to figure out, like, it's not an organization, it's a person, but ultimately you're figuring out the politics of how, of how that person's going to make a decision. The same exact thing you're doing in sales. I never thought of that. That's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, you hear these stories, right? Like, Think of the 1980s and that running back at SMU, Craig James. He went to SMU because his wife was a freshman at SMU. But like, you got to know those things. Like, that's a thing that in your multi-threading, like, oh, maybe the sister's got a lot of influence. Maybe I need to win over the sister with our educational program. And maybe someone else can focus the basketball thing. And, you know, in the multi-threading of recruiting, like, obviously head coach, player, right? But maybe I'm taking the uncle to the side. And maybe one of the other assistants has taken the high school coach and they all have things they want too. And understanding that kind of gets to like, okay, well, can the high school coach get a better job because now they're affiliated with LSU? Can that mother feel confident about the educational program that we're offering so that that kid's going to graduate college? Like all of this goes into the recruiting process. And more I think about it, it is just multi-threading a sales process. Yep. And, it, and it's aligning the resources on your side. It's like, all right, this is the technical lead. We're going to get our SE needs to get tight with, with this guy or this girl, right? It's the same exact Absolutely. thing. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. So was it, was it pretty hard, uh, Chris, leaving coaching behind and kind of becoming a, you know, coaches are unique human beings, right? You kind of got almost had to change your identity a little bit. Like, was that hard? Uh, oh, it was the hardest thing ever. I mean, a lot of self-confidence issues came up, uh, a lot of self-esteem, right? I went from being on ESPN, worrying about what my tie looked like on national TV, to sitting in a cubicle, cold calling for a knowledge management software. And I'm sitting there in the cubicle working my East Coast hours because I was an inside rep supporting someone out there. And I, I'm feeling like a loser, right? I'm at the bottom. And I was a... a up and coming youngest coach in whatever the SEC. And now I'm like, I make no money. I'm starting off with the worst job. And I'm in a cubicle where I don't even know if my parents know the name of the company I work at. And it was really, really hard. And for me, I would always be like, man, what did I just give up? What, why did I do this? But I think that also drove me too. Cause you know, you get on LinkedIn and LinkedIn is like kind of my social media, right? And so I get on LinkedIn, I'm like 27 at this point, I'm starting over and I'm looking at my, my Stanford cohort and like, someone's got a great job, that person's got a great job and everyone posts on LinkedIn all these great stuff. And I'm like, I, I kind of feel like a loser. I'm the oldest SDR and all these other people have these great jobs. And I had to like remind myself and pump myself up to say like, no, 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 this is today. Watch where I'll be in nine months. Watch where I'll be in 36 months. 
And it was funny because um, one of the people that I talked to when I was making this transition uh, was a gentleman named Bill Campbell that a lot of people in the Bay Area just call Coach. And Legend. yeah, and and I remember when I when I got in his office, he looked at me. He's like, and I won't swear here, but what the f do you want? And I was like, whoa. He said, what am I doing here? What, what, why do you want to talk to me? And I was like, well. You coached to Columbia until you're 35, and then you made the transition to Kodak, and then, you know, VP of marketing to Apple. He's like, yeah, so what? What do you want? And he was very direct, and he's like, tell me what to do. Pick a good company, get an entry-level sales job, and show you're worth a shit, and then come back to me. And it was like that kind of the kick in the butt that I needed to be like, not woe is me, not I'm a loser. It's like, okay, this is what I'm doing now, so let's get as laser-focused and be best at what this job is right now. I'm not worrying about five years down the road. I'm worrying about being the best SDR I possibly can. And so I was at Box, and I loved the technology. I loved what we were doing. And I put my head down and just said, okay, I'm the oldest SDR. Fine. But I'm not going to be that for much longer. And I'm going to do all the things to be the best SDR I can. All of this stuff that I'm learning now and cold calling and supporting these customers and getting them maybe to a new paid platform, whatever it is, I'm going to take all that with me. And uh, yeah, I'm going to work on Saturdays too. And you know what? You know who's working Sunday night? Australians. I'll go get leads there. I'll go to Japan on Sunday nights when I can to go get more leads. I'm going to get more leads than anyone on the team. And my leads are going to be better than anyone else's. And so that's where I kind of had to say, like, Coach Campbell said, show your worth of shit. Stop, stop yeah. worrying about you so much. What are you doing for the team? I can't, I can't agree more, Chris. Like, for, for the listeners out there, like, Feeling like a loser in an entry-level sales job, you're, you, I don't want to say you're supposed to feel like a loser, but like I, I always attribute it to it's freshman football for me. Like I was playing in high school, all league, whatever, all state champion. Then I got to Holy Cross and they're like, hey, carry the bags. I'm like, I'm not carrying the bags. Like I just won the state championship. Why am I carrying the bags? But you're the freshman on the team. You don't really count. You know, you got, I have to prove that I know how to sack the quarterback and I can outside in contain, right? Like I know I can, but they don't know I can. I'm just a freshman on the team. So I, I think when I talk to a lot of candidates and when JR talks to a lot of athletes transitioning, shifting into sales, some people don't want to do it because they feel like they're going to be like entry level, but you have to be entry level if you're going to be any good at sales. People want to People that want to come in and be a VP or an account executive right away, it's no. Become an entry-level BDR and cut your teeth. I, I can't say that enough. I, I hear you. And and it's one of the things that I, I've told people, too. It's like, look, I know you want to come in, close big deals right away, but you you have to learn. And you have the best way to learn is by making 100 calls, getting hung up on, getting your skin thicker, and, and learning your own product, too. My mom worked at Adobe in the early 90s. And she told me they used to put the sales reps on the customer support line before they were even allowed to sell. You're going to learn our product. You're going to learn what the customers don't like about our product. So now you're ready to objection handle later. And I think like that's a hard thing because if you're, I mean, I know a person that was an Olympian volleyball player that changed into sales. And for him, that was a hard thing. Like I'm an Olympian. I'm going to now what? Work with these other, you know, 25 year olds that are entry level like that's a hard humble pie to eat very hard yeah 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 but uh, but but to john's point i think athletes kind of get it a little bit 
better than most because, you know, it's like anything, right? You got to go back to the fundamentals. Um, and that's where you learn it. The fundamentals you learn as a BDR, as an SDR. Um, by the way, th- that was like the biggest name drop we've had on the, uh, on the pod, I think, John. Coach, coach, Bill Campbell. I mean, dude, he's worked with Larry Page, Sergey Brin, Eric Schmidt, Sundar Pinchay, Steve Jobs, Jeff Bezos, Jack Dorsey. Like, that guy is a complete legend. That's unreal. You just got to be in the same room as him, Chris. Shout you out Bill was, Campbell. <laughs> yeah, well, and you know that he's a great, he was a great person. And the thing, too, is the only reason I even earned that meeting was because when I was coaching in the community when I was in college, I coached a kid whose dad was good friends with him. And he said, hey, look, you're ready to come in. You got to go talk to coach. I already told him your story. He wants to meet with you. But, you know, he's going to be, you know, you might get eight minutes, but make it your whole day and come correct and show up on time. Be there 30 minutes early. Be there an hour early. And like, and then the other thing I did, and JR, we might talk about this later too, but like, I, I always tell people like, involve those people in your process. Like, he took the time to meet with me. I would send him emails every six months. Whether or not he replied, I didn't care. But he took that time to send me a note or spend that time. So I said, look, update, Chris Bobel. I would just literally send an email two years later. Chris Bobel, job update, got promoted. Thanks so much for what you said. That's like, you, can't teach, you can't teach that, Chris. And I like I talk to a lot of people that are like, hey, I just read I just read your book and I got a job at this company. And I'm, I'm like, yeah, keep me posted on how you're doing. You know, I'd love to hear from you. Most people never write anything back. Right. They just they, right. they they use I don't want to say they use you, but they talk to you for what they need. They get on and they go on. But I, I'm sure he you know, if he sees your email, he probably loves it. You know, he doesn't have to like stop his day and like call you and say congrats on the promotion. But if he sees it, he's like, oh, this kid is, you know, paying attention. That's that Absolutely. probably means a lot to him. Yeah. You know, you gave some great advice, I think, for early sellers about like, listen, like you got to sacrifice, you got to work a little bit harder, you got to earn it. Um, anything else that you would kind of give them advice for, for that, the early days of their selling career? Absolutely. I think finding those people that are in the position that you want and sidling up to learn and learn on your own time. So I would beg reps, like you don't even want this lead. This lead, you're going to have to wake up at three in the morning because it's Ireland. Let me run it. It's not a, it's not a big deal. It's $11,000 deal. Let me run it. And I had a guy, Andrew Smith, who actually uh, went to school with Nordy. And he was like, you want this lead for Heathrow Airport at Box? There are much sexier companies. Like, Give it to me. Let me run it. He's like, cool. And he allowed me a little leash and said, look, you can't mess this up. You're not going to mess up my number. And he was an AE that said, go cut your teeth. Go make those 4 a.m. meetings with Heathrow Airport to do a small deal. And as an SDR, I got to close the deal at Box, partly because Andrew gave me that opportunity to say, you can run one of my small deals, but you better learn how to demo first. You better learn all these other things. So on my free time, when I wasn't doing my calls and passing leads, I would go at night and practice a demo. I'd turn my camera on like I was giving a webinar and zero people would be on the other line. And I'm like cracking jokes, dad jokes, of course, something appropriate and getting ready for if I do have that demo and if I do get to have a pricing discussion, like I would role play against myself, just hoping that one day I would get that next gig. 
And also, so when I'm interviewing internally, I'm, I'm doing my job in nine to five as best as I possibly can. But in my free time, I'm preparing myself to make me an attractive hire internally for that next role. Not like three roles ahead, but just that very next one. So when I can tell the hiring manager, I am a zero risk hire for you, zero risk. I can already do the job. I have these AE support. This is the no brainer decision of your life because I'm ready today and make it so easy on that hiring manager or whoever it is that you need to impress because you can show, look, I'm practicing already. It's not like you give me the job and whoa, is he going to cut it? Is she going to cut it the next six months? I'm ready day one. And so that's what I would say. If someone is an SDR or BDR and they want to be an AE, do the AE work, do it, practice it. And like the funny thing about sales and sports, it's the same. You don't shoot the ball once in the game, right? Yeah, you might get one shot, but let's hope you were taking 500 jump shots a day the last three years so that the opportunity comes up, you're ready. I had one shot in the NCAA tournament and I missed it. And because we missed it, we still lost by more than 20 points. But, but I uh, got in for those last two seconds and shot that ball. And it looked good, but it was because even though I was not going to shoot 10 times in a game, I would still shoot 100 shots at practice like everyone, because if I had that one opportunity to do it, I have already put in those reps and I've made those 100 cold calls. If I ever become an AE and I get an account book, but I was an SDR. So now I have that practice. I have that ritual and I'm ready for my account book once I become the AE too. I think the theme of the theme of today's show is practice. Like it's just like yeah. be ready to go. DTR practice, practice. It, it makes so much. I think uh, uh, the New England Patriots when Malcolm Butler had run that pick play in practice so many times, and then the, he picked it off at the end of the Super Bowl. Like you know, it's not like the first time he saw that. But odds are they're probably not going to run that play, but he's ready for it. So I think of that in sales. Like sometimes, sometimes, and Jr. is probably the same way. Like I've been in situations in sales where I'm like in my head, I'm like, oh. We've rehearsed for situations like this, like they're asking for something. And now I know, like, I know what to do because I practice this so many times. That's very, very important. And the more you do it, the easier it becomes. Like I, for, you know, the people listening to the show, but I had to do a discovery call my first year. I, I was panicked. I was like scripting, like, you know, writing stuff down. Now I can take a discovery call right now. It just doesn't matter who it is. I know what to do. You know, it's just like, the practice. So switching gears real quick, Chris. So a lot of a lot of listeners are facing job offers today, multiple job offers from different types of companies. You know, there's OTE, there's equity, there's big company, small company, startups, you name it. If somebody was facing two to three offers, what advice would you give them on choosing between the companies? Absolutely. So I think one thing, depending on where they're at in the career, if they are a new seller. I'd ask, what's your training program like? Not just the training on your product, but what's your training on your sales process? I saw you all had John Kaplan on. Are you guys running force management? I would ask them those kind of questions. What is your company's sales process? Are you MedPick? Great. Tell me about how you enforce that. Do you have Pipe Up Mondays? Tell me about how I'm going to get better. What structure do you have in place to ensure that a new hire like myself can be successful? Because I will put in the work but I need to know that you have the guardrails 
and you have all this stuff figured out already. And if not, then you're asking me to do a different job. And that's cool too. But I want to know, eyes wide open, what I'm going into. Are you expecting me to come up with the sales process? Cool. I'll do it. But I just want to know. I don't want to hit day one, get ready to make my calls, and then either not have a script or have a script or not have product knowledge. Like, I want eyes wide open. So I would ask those type questions. What is the training? What are the expectation? And and even like super tactical things. Are you work from home or am I in the office all day? And if that matters to you, know that all up front. There's no right answer. Maybe you don't want a process, but at least know what you're getting into it so you can compare that to your own job requirements. If you want to be a person that comes into the office every day, then you might want that expectation to be for your teammates. So maybe you want to be at a company that works in the office nine to five. That's great. But I think the people that don't know and they come in and they're like, oh man, I got here and it's so different than what it was like. That's a problem. And that's on you as the interviewee for not doing your homework and your due diligence. If you want to know what the office culture is like, go have lunch there. Go ask someone to be a guest and see what it's like. Are people happy? Are they loud? Are they on the phone? Or is it very quiet and people in the conference rooms taking their calls? Like, what's the sales floor like? For me, that was very important about Box. I went to Box four times before my interview, had lunch there, saw how people interacted. Again, I had Andrew Smith, a great guy, taking me around, but it might be a little harder in a virtual environment, but I would never worry about OTE. You're in sales. OTE is on you. Like you have accelerators, crush them if you want to make money. That's on you. And so I think like knowing what the structure of the OTE is, are my accelerators quarterly? Are they annually? Okay. Am I on a 50-50 plan? Tell you what, give me zero base salary and let me go eat what I kill. That's my thought. But that might not be for everyone. So know those things. Equity, that's a whole big, long conversation. But entry level and newer sellers, they're not getting multi-million dollar equity packages anyway. So let's focus on the things we can control. Because when you hit that ground at the company, control what you can control, play hard, and attack the effing opportunity. And if you know those things going in, great. But if you come in and you're like, whoa, I didn't know I was expected to be in the office. I didn't know how the comp plan worked. I didn't know what the quotas were going to be. I didn't know I was going to sell into North Dakota, even though I live in Montecito, California. Like know (laughs) those things so that when you hit the ground running, no surprises. And I think that goes back to like sports and the, the ritual. We would have a practice plan. I would put it on the kid's locker. Like they knew, okay, 3 p.m. DTR, 302, four on four shell. Like they knew. And like, then you could get mentally prepared for it. So I would say like, just like you're in a sales process, get to the truth immediately. No guessing. Don't I think, well, I assume, stop thinking, stop assuming, get to the truth. And you need to do that, I think, in your job interview process. Get to the truth of what it is they're actually offering you. And does that align to what your job requirements are? And if you don't have your job requirements, shame on you. Go back. Shouldn't even be interviewing if you don't know what's important to you. Sorry, I got a little fired up there. No, I love it. It's awesome. I I can't agree more. Like We train our our athletes to ask about the training and development program. And, And the other thing that we tell them that's super important for... Like, forget about, you know, I know big company, small company, you know, all these other things, but we, we always tell them like, 
training and development, growth, and like you can appreciate this as a coach. Who are you going to learn from? Who's going to who, like? Who are you going to work for and with every single day? Like, like do you agree, Chris? That's like a pretty important part of that first gig as well. Absolutely. I in in my I was telling someone the other day I would never go work for a company if I didn't know their leadership, if I didn't know who I'm actually going to be reporting to and the things they care about. One hundred percent. I'm serious. Like, if you're listening, you should. I know I'm going to call it a rant, Chris, but you should rewind a little bit and listen to what you just went on a rant about. Like, that's what people should be doing when they interview for sales companies, especially today. Everybody gets all bright eyed about these companies, but like, you're right. There's, you can see there's companies coming out every day, like, you know, squadcable.org. And it's like, we're, we're the next generation cloud company. There's so many companies out there that these, People that are interviewing should do what you just said. So if I was a new, new, you know, a new sales rep, I'd rewind this and listen to what Chris just said. And don't be afraid. Like if you ask questions like that and you don't get the job, you probably don't want to work there anyways. Right. Like they need to be transparent and forthcoming with you. If you if you're asking about the culture and they get all defensive, just run. That's my opinion. Like if, if you're asking, you know what it's like, can I come sit for lunch one day? And they say, no, you can't really do that. We don't want to show you what it's like. You probably shouldn't. You probably shouldn't do that. You know. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know if you guys have comments on that, but I want to switch gears a little bit to to the skill. You you gave a lot of good info on what to ask the interviewers, but skill development. So you know, twenty twenty three new hires joining a company. What skills will separate them from the rest of the pack? I think for twenty twenty three, I think the what will really change reps being successful or not. It is that multi-threading approach and understanding how their customers buy software. If you and you might be on a call and someone may not know how they buy software, they may not know their procurement process, their signing process. The people that understand that process quickly are going to be the ones that are successful because not everyone's going to buy. And you're you look at your top of your funnel and it's a numbers game and you have 20 opportunities that are going to go down to four, whatever it is, but understanding your ideal customer profile and then whittling down where you're going to be the most successful and then getting in there and understanding exactly how those customers are going to buy. And again, it goes back to like getting rid of surprises. If you know that a security questionnaire is going to come on January 28th, great, get ahead of it. Ask for that security questionnaire on December 28th, because if you're on what you think are the goal line of your deal and you get a surprise of, oh, we need to redline this and bring in lawyers. Do you know that those lawyers are ready? Does everybody in your process know the deadlines? Do you have a mutual plan? Does that mutual plan, has it been shared with the customer? Has it been shared internally? Are all of your resources aligned? Because if not, one small mistake, one reason to give a CFO the power to say, nope, this isn't well thought out. This isn't good to our business. Your deal is dead. So I think if I were to encourage reps in 2023, do the hard work as early as humanly possible to understand everyone on the other side that may be involved. And if you're talking to one person, I guarantee you it's the wrong person unless it's the CEO. And even CEOs have to report to a board to a committee, get to those ways. Um, you know, I've sold to companies and I won't name drop any of them here, but 
it's very, their process might get outsourced to a specific team in the company to reduce any bias, to reduce any conflict of interest. I had a great relationship with the Texas company, and then they just pawned me off to a whole nother department three months before the deadline. And I knew that was a buying signal, but then it was like, okay, I'm glad they did it three months and not three days. And that was super helpful because they said, this is our buying process. It's out of our hands now. We've given our recommendation. So the people that are going to be successful in 2023 get to know very early, understand their customer's process very early, and then be maniacally focused on the ideal customer profile of where you sell to. No one ever wants to be first. And so I would say like taking your account list, whittling it down, and then being maniacally focused on those customers' sales process is going to be hyper important because at the end of the day, the one thing you can never get back is your time. And if you waste nine months working on a customer that they could have told you no, if you would have asked the right questions to the right people in March, shame on you. That's nine, that's nine months you'll never get back that you could not be going to other customers. Or if you're trying to shove a square peg in a round hole and you want some ego thing about, I want to be the first person to ever do this deal, probably not going to happen. So is that your ideal customer profile? What customers do you have that are like them? Like going through this and then playing deal roast against yourself or with your friends is an awesome thing. Ryan Lipster and I, on Friday nights when we were in the Slack office in New York, if we didn't have anything to do, we'd be, hey, you want to go play roast? Sure. We'd go in a room and he'd write up his deals. I'm like, okay, the deal's not happening for this reason, this reason, this reason, this reason. And he would do the same to my deals. And we would spend Friday nights. And I remember he got, he ran the table uh, at the end of like 2018 on his four opportunities for the year. And he, he won an award. I remember he came and he thanked me and he said, like, thanks for playing deal roast with me. It helped me look at these when I had happy ears. I didn't think about the legal MSA for that customer because they were an existing customer. So I assumed I didn't have to go through it where maybe that amount of the deal crossed a new threshold that it had additional legal eyes on it or CFO eyes. So I think and that was a very talkative way, but like, that's what I would say. Focus on your customer's processes. Once you've already established that they are an ideal customer profile for you and that you've gotten things like the technical win, all of that, all the requirements, but that's so 50%, their sales process and their buying process is really what's going to be the most important. There's so many parallels between how you answered the interview thing and that. Like, it's like, listen, attention to details that matter. It's asking hard questions and it's, and it's qualifying out as quickly as possible. Like, like, Hey, I want to, I want to go into an office and you guys have a remote culture. I'm out. Right. Like, and then it's like, hey, you have to get to this, to the CFO, and, and I'm not going to introduce you. I don't have that power. It's like, all right, we need to find somebody that has power to get me to the CFO if he's part of the process. So that attention to detail and asking tough questions is awesome. I love it. Um, Chris, we, we really launched the business at the beginning of 2022. So we've got a bunch of BDRs now that listen to our show that are, they're, they're getting promoted into AEs. Um, I'm getting, I'm getting texts like three, four times a week from the kids that we placed back at the beginning of this year. And it's awesome. Um, I'd love to get your advice a little bit. Like what are a couple things as a rep that worked really well for you that you focused on? Specifically with my BDRs? 
No, like as a as a sales rep, what are the what are the things that worked? Like the things that you that you did to approach the job that you think separated you from the the rest of the, the pack. You know, I think one of the things is getting. I, I hate to say it because I know a lot of virtual culture, but getting on site and like learning how people are in their company. And I I won't name the company again, but I remember I was walking through Dallas once with my guy that had told me everything that like, oh, I'm your decision maker. I'm this, I'm that. So we go on site and we're walking through the office and he sits down in a cubicle, in a cubicle farm in the middle. And I was like, oh yeah, well, you know, uh, Stephanie over there in the corner office, like, yeah, we, we might meet with her next week. I immediately was like, this is not my guy. This is not my guy. This person has no signing authority. They're in the middle of a cubicle farm. I need to be in Stephanie's corner office. And like just being able to walk around and even see like, how are other people looking at this person? Were they like tightening up? Like, did this person have juice? Were other people like, not scared when he was walking by, but like, how did he carry himself there? Because he's never gonna say, oh, I'm not a decision maker. Oh, I don't have any juice. I wanna find the Don Draper at every company I'm working with. And like, what I mean is, I wanna attach myself to power, change agents, whatever name you wanna call it at the company that gets whatever she or he wants. That's who I wanna work with and sell to. That's who I wanna usher me into the company. Cause when I was in that Dallas office and I saw that person plop himself down in a cubicle farm, nah, he ain't got no juice. And so like there I knew I needed to separate. And so my thing is always, I need to get on site. I need to get into the company because I always feel deals are always done in the hallways, not in the boardroom. And you will get to the truth. And my thing is, I just want truth. And I think one time I spent like six hours at this baseball game. It went to like literally 16 innings. I hate baseball, but I sat there and my my customer, my champion, whatever you want to call it, was telling me what was good. But on the BART ride home, this was in the Bay Area, He grabs me before he gets off and he says, listen, just don't make me sign a multi-year contract and I won't won't argue with you on the price for year one. And I was like, oh man, he's my rat. He's my rat. He just told me the truth. And like finding someone like that, that's going to cut through it. And he would never have said that on a big call in a big meeting. And so like finding those people that will give you the truth early is so important. And I, I use it the term rat affectionately because you have coaches, you have champions, but having another person in your sales process that'll tell you what's really going on that may turn their laptop around to you at a coffee shop and say like, here's the internal email that just went out about Slack. We're going in. And I'm like, done. Perfect. Thank you. I won't screenshot nothing. So yeah. One thing, one thing, Chris, that stands out is you said the guy in the cubicle is not your guy, right? Just one thing that I've learned in my career is sometimes that is the guy that not maybe not in this specific cycle, but I've been in cycles where there's 15 people in a room and the executives in there with the C-suite titles and everybody's focused just on this, you know, CFO. And at the end of the meeting, the CFO turns to the kid in the back and goes, Hey, Ethan, you engineered this whole thing. What do you think? Like, this is your call anyways. And nobody had been talking to Ethan the whole time. I've seen it work both ways, but that you need to find out who is the right person, right? Like, or who's the, who's the person that's going to help. But um, I just want to kind of close out with um, um, 
two things here. So we have two more, two closing questions typically. JR, unless you had some other ones before I kind of move on. Yeah, let me just comment on that before you ask the first, last question. <laughs> um, real quick story. We, we did a huge deal at EMC before Dell bought them. And we found out that this low-level guy was tight with the CIO because he helped him with all his Apple products. Like if, if he ever ran into an issue with his iPad, his iPhone, whatever... The CIO would go to this guy and he would also ask him questions about like what was going on. And this kid, this guy wasn't even a director level, like he was an engineer. So when we did our evaluation there, we won this guy over and that's how we got the deal. And it was a huge competitive deal. So you're right. Like try to figure out who, who's the guy, who's the girl, who's the, who's the one with the true influence and power. That's such a, such a game changer. I just wanted to comment on that, John. You can, uh, yeah, it's, it's, sometimes it's a random person. Absolutely, yeah, it's, it's hard to find. Oh, yeah. it's like when, usually it's the person in the corner office. But yeah, well, I can remember <laughs> in Moneyball when Brad Pitt like hunts down Jonah Hill in the movie. He's like, "Who are you? Why did they ask you?" Yeah. Like, find yeah. the Jonah Hill in Moneyball. Yeah. And again, yeah. my uh, and I'm not going to ditch that person and say like, "Oh, you're not of power." I'm still going to keep them involved. No question. I'm going to be nice to everyone. I'm going to make everyone feel empowered. I'm going to make everyone feel like Don Draper, but I still need to find it. And I think when I think about like, what do I do well? All in my coaching. Think back, like, how did I coach Marcus Thornton versus Garrett Temple? How, how did I think about what did they need? That little push. How hard could I push that person? Could that person respond to being MF'd all day? And if they could, then I'm going to MF all day. And they will get better. But not everyone responds that well. So like taking that coaching mentality of like Phil Jackson did not coach Dennis Rodman the same way he coached Michael Jordan. So I'm not treating two reps that same way that I lead. I'm not treating two customers that way. I'm not even treating two people at the customer. You can coach, push different people different way. And like my ability, what I think I do well on is I think I know people well. I think I observe talent well. And then I think, I hope, I can take what I see in those people, push them just enough, but not out of their comfort zone where they're not going to help me. Maybe they knew need to go a little out of their comfort zone, but finding that person and then empowering that person that it's not just my idea for them to buy. It's our idea. In fact, no, it's your idea. So how do I make this? How do I make you look really good? And finding like, hey, if we do this project, will you get promoted? Wouldn't that be great? What can we do? How can we use this Slack evaluation or this box evaluation? How can we make this your ticket to what you want? Okay, if you get another job, does that pay for your, your new construction at your house? Like, what do you want out of this? How are you measured? Because I'm going to do everything I can to make sure you look good. Yep. That's my job here. I'm just behind the scenes. I forget if, uh, I, I don't know if you watched it or listened to any of the episodes yet, Chris, but, uh, I don't think we've had anybody kind of just take the the second to last question on their own, but I was going to ask what makes you elite? And it seems like your coaching style, like I think that's the answer, but that was going to be my question. What makes you elite in sales? And you kind of nailed, nailed it. But if you want to expand on that, I can. No, I think for, for me, it's just like understanding people and like, what do they really want out of it? And sometimes you just have to ask and they'll tell you, and we don't do that enough. We don't say like, hey, what makes you look good at your job? What are your goals for this year? Because like if Slack, what I'm, what I, I represent Slack. So I love Slack. 
I think everyone in the world should be using Slack every day, but that person may not feel that way. And that's okay. So what does that person, what makes them look good? And we always think about, well, no one got fired for buying IBM, right? Or Big Blue. Yeah. Okay, cool. But like, I'm not worried about you losing your job. I'm worried about you getting another job that you want. Or is your job, do you just want to go home at 4 p.m. to be with your kids and coach soccer? Great. As long as I know that, then I will work in those confines of what's important to you. And if I can do that at six different people at my customer, and then we do a, a deal, a partnership that's not a transaction, it's a partnership, does everyone win? I want everyone to be excited about the partnership. I'm going to write them all notes after and thank them from the procurement person to the low IT director to whatever. But I want everyone to be on board with this. And I might have to coach nine people, 17 different ways to make that happen. And I'm okay to do that because I'll be that chameleon that can MF that person, coddle that other person and make sure that they all get win. So I think that would be um, my power. And I know we're running on time, but if you have another question, um, I'm, I'm, let's jump in. Final question, Chris. This is awesome, by the way. Another must-listen episode for our candidates, dude. I love it. And, and, and the, the themes are practice, asking tough questions, focus on the details. Um, so my father, I grew up in a, in a coach's house, Chris. My dad was a coach, coached hockey. And, he, and, and we all went on to play college. And, and my brother played professionally in the Olympics. And he used to tell us, you know, there's a lot of people that play hockey, but there's not a lot of hockey players. And he was, he was really emphasizing the idea of being a pro, like being a professional, even at a young age. And I think in software, we see the same thing nowadays, especially since the career is kind of blown up. There's a lot of people that sell software, but there's not a lot of software sales professionals. And we think that's the highest praise you can give someone is calling them a pro, right? Like the John Kaplan's of the world, John McMahon's of the world, those guys, those are pros. What do you think, what does being a pro mean to you in software sales? Wow. You know what? I, I think table manners and I'll, I'll, I'll work that back. So when you're a pro, you show up the right way every day, every day. And that includes when you go out to dinner with your prospects, you're still on the clock. You're still showing up. So what are your table manners? Are you, you know, chewing with your mouth open? Are you being polite? Are you showing up at dinner the same way you show up in the boardroom, in the hallway? You are always on. The moment you strap that jersey to your back, you are representing the product and the company. And every moment, whether it's a phone call, you're walking to a baseball game with your prospect, you are representing your brand and you are why it's so important, especially for remote reps, to be that pro and that buttoned up is because that might be your customer's only engagement with your company. And if you're not showing up prepared with an agenda for every meeting, if you're not showing up and providing something of value to your customer every time, then you're not a pro. A pro comes to every engagement, internal and external, with a plan, with a well-thought-out vision whatever it is, a POV, if you want to call it, but that includes at the dinner table with your prospect and having good manners. It's, it goes all the way. Being a pro is showing up to your fullest ability every moment. And yeah, that's hard. And like nothing, you know, we can talk about things that are very simple, but also very difficult. It is very simple to lose weight. It is also very difficult. It is very simple to show up every day, but it's very difficult. 
So like, can you do that at all hours for your internal meetings with your boss, with your BDR? Because it's easy to slouch in the chair and not care for those 30 minutes. But being a pro means every time they see you, that could be the only time they ever see J.R. Butler or John Davis. And what are they going to say after? Because what if th- what if that CIO came in the meeting for four minutes of four hours and they saw you slouched or being rude to someone? You can't have that. Being a pro is every moment doing all of the things that represent your brand and your company's brand as you're out there engaging with customers. That's to me what a pro is. It's one of my favorite answers, Chris. Manners, I, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Like when you learn a new language, the first two things you learn are please and thank you. And it's like, it gets you by. You can get by. I was in France this summer. If I can just say please and thank you in French, I can get a taxi, I can get a coffee, whatever. Reps think too much. They think that like dropping price is difficult. That's not difficult. You know, saying please and thank you, holding doors, opening, you know, being welcoming to people. That's the difficult thing. And it's the easy thing too. So I love how you said that. That's, you gotta, you gotta have table manners, 100%. Home run. Home run. Chris, this was awesome. Awesome conversation. I'm pumped. I'm pumped to get this in front of our candidates, man. Thank you so much for sharing with us and spending the time with us, buddy. This was unbelievable. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm I'm excited to go cold call right now. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go. This wraps up this episode of Merchants of Change. If you enjoyed this episode, the most meaningful way to say thanks is to submit a review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're interested in working with us, please come find us at www.shiftgroup.io.